Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we're going to do our best to make our way through four verses. So we're really hitting the accelerator. Verse 5, for it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, notice this double negative, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's probably the greatest summary line on the history of humanity in the scripture. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. All alone on a remote grassy rise, his long day finally slowed by his well-fed and watered flock beds themselves down for the night. Their attentive shepherd pulls his cloak blanket up more tightly around his body and wearily leans back against a smooth rock to rest. With his fingers laced together behind his head, his eyes begin to scan the cloudless dome above. Slowly his gaze shifts from one extreme horizon to the other and he begins to marvel at the incredible expanse of the heavens and the thousands of lights that lit the night. Then almost spontaneously his mouth speaks these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the earth. But as the vastness of his universe closes in on him, he becomes increasingly aware of how truly insignificant a shepherd lad alone on a pasture hill really is, and he begins to contemplate his own insignificance. So he writes, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then, somewhere in the massive, crowded streets of a half a million residents of the world's capital city, Rome, there was gathered a small group of homeless followers of Jesus, exiles in a foreign city, outcasts from their families, declared to be atheists by their former spiritual leaders, suspects as insurgents in the eyes of Roman politicians, constantly on the alert as objects of persecution, imprisonment, and imminent death. Many were beginning to question the wisdom of following Jesus. Is our commitment to Christ truly worth the price? Is he enough? And so to encourage the discouraged and to exhort the doubting and to move the undecided towards saving faith, the author of Hebrews recites the heart of the eighth psalm, O Lord, our Lord. 
How majestic is your name? Now, if the task of the preacher is described by one of the notable pastors of the past, the writer of this letter did his job well. That task is, the task of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's the structure that we see unfolding in Hebrews. In verses 1 to 5, we have comfort for the afflicted. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. That's comfort. That's encouragement. There is a reliable word from God. He he, he wraps that up in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So there is a ministry of encouragement in the angelic representation and messengers from God. That's encouragement to the afflicted. But now he afflicts the comfortable with a warning, the first of five warnings in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And now he shifts gears again in verse 5, and he brings encouragement. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. What he reminds them is, is that there is a divine purpose, there is a divine intention, there is a destiny that God had in mind for humanity back in the garden, Genesis chapter 1, when God said, let us, plural, make man, or us, singular, make man, plural, in our image, in the image of God, he made them male and female, and he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and rule over it. God had a divine intention. So there is, a, there is a rebellion that took place because man resisted the authority of God, but it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. When he talks about the world to come in the text, he is talking about the future messianic reign of Christ. The fact that there is one who will ultimately be recognized as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This messianic promise, that that was the theme song of every one of the prophets. I just selected two in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament as illustration of that. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 to 4 says, "It, It shall come a pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will flow into it and many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we might walk in His paths. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Isaiah 11, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not be hurt or destroyed in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the world that is to come. Or turn in your Bible all the way to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation and the next to last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. 
where we read this description of that world that is to come. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, the dividing amongst the nations, was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away personally every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. It was not to the angels. That throne is not being reserved, preserved for angels that God would subject, align the world, bring it under submission. That is the world to come of which we are speaking. And then he throws this, this line in. It has been testified somewhere. I, I find that a most intriguing line. And so now he begins to reference the rebellion of man. God, man was created by God to rule over all that God had created. They were like co-regents. They were accountable to God, but they were in charge to master all of creation, the universe that he had spoken into existence. And then he throws this line in and says, and it has been testified somewhere, and you're asking the question, did the writer of Hebrews skip Awana one night or something? It's like, doesn't he? No, I, I think the, the, the point that we have seen over and over in Hebrews already is, is that the human author is not the focal point of the book. There's a, I think I referenced it a couple of weeks ago, but there, there is a, what's called a red letter movement. And it is basically that if Jesus said it, that supersedes or takes dominance over everything else that is written in the scriptures. But Paul would push back on that and said, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. I don't think that he's saying here, I, I don't remember for sure where this is. So we often do that when you're talking to somebody. I said, I, I know I should know where this reference is, but I, somewhere in the Bible it says, and usually it's something ridiculous like what mom taught you, cleanliness is next to godliness. And you know, I've taught through Proverbs so many times you can't believe it. It's not in there, folks. That's not. So, it, but in this case, it was legitimately, he, I think he knew that it was the psalmist David that wrote it. But the point was that God spoke this truth. What is man that you are mindful of him? Man, human beings created to be the image bearers of God. Genesis 1, 28 and following, 26, 28, created to rule over all that God created. What is man that you are mindful, some of your translations say that you are thoughtful of him. When he talks about being mindful of him, what is, is a designation that he is aware and about to take action to intervene on behalf of man's need. So he just raises the question. Now again, as I said, David's laying out on the pasture looking at the sky, and while he's looking at a massive universe, you, you, perhaps you've done that, and you suddenly feel so small and so insignificant. 
Does, does anybody even know that I'm here? Does anybody even care that I'm here? Is anybody going to do anything to meet my needs? Well, I'm here. As I told the prayer group this morning, I, I, I can't help it. My heart is incredibly stirred. And, and our brothers and sisters have been, been being slaughtered for the gospel around the world for many centuries. It's not a new thing. But we have information coming to us more quickly today. And that today, brothers and sisters of ours in Afghanistan will be taken into stadiums and they will chop their hands off to prevent them from, or, or they'll line them up by 30s and 40s and they'll remove their heads for one simple reason, that they discovered the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. And there was a church in Rome, as Chuck Swindoll said, a homeless group of people that lost everything, including family and possessions. What are you going to say to them to give them hope in the midst of the darkness? I'm going to quote Psalm 8. I'm going to ask the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? That you, the God, who could spread out the curtain, as he said in Isaiah 40, of the stars, and yet still be the God that knows every single star by name. A meteorite dives out of the sky. The father looks at the son and says, well, there went Johnny. You know, it's like he knows them all. And he, it, David is contemplating that. He says, what is man, the image bearer of God, insignificant that you would be aware of him or the son of man that you care for him i did quite a bit of work on what is the son of man i tried to trace it through the scriptures it it repeats over and over and over again and it is basically a generic statement about humanity you are the son of humans but Jesus picks it up as his favorite personal title. In the Gospels, Jesus references himself as the Son of Man more than 70 times. So you have Bibles on your lap. Turn back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Why did Jesus take this very generic expression for the descendant of humanity, the son of man, he is born of human, why did he grab that and make it his title? Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. That in Matthew alone appears 31 times. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Go back to the left in your Bible. Go to chapter 4 of Daniel. And this is a bunny trail for which you don't even have to put an extra quarter in the offering slot. Just mark it down as Rempel lost track of where he was going and took us on this journey. You see, Nebuchadnezzar shames the Taliban and others that we... I mean, you think that we see cruelty today. King Neb made them look like Sunday school teachers. But at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is everlasting domain and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will. He is sovereign over all. Among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Who is this King of heaven? Daniel 7 said it is the Son of Man. You see, here's the blessed hope. It took seven years of insanity crawling around like a cow eating grass to bring Nebuchadnezzar to that place where he recognized that God is God and I am not. So while we, we pray that God will liberate our brothers and sisters from tyranny, we also understand that those who are bearing the sword are not beyond the grace reach of the hand of God. So what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. This man. Why is he for a little while lower than the angels? It's because of his willful rebellion. In Isaiah 14, Lucifer, one of the angels, said, I will make myself like unto God, and he was cast out. See, he says to the first couple in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, you can't believe what God said. The day you eat of the tree of the knowledge, you will understand the difference between good and evil. You'll be godlike. And man rebelled against God. As a result of that, one author put it this way, because of the fall, everything man does is a dead end to a successful conclusion. Nothing that he attempts can be accomplished. Why? Because he is no longer king over the universe. He was created to rule. His destiny was to be a co-regent with God, but because of the fall, he can no longer do the very thing for which he was created. Today, his creation flaunts its rebellion. I just made us. We willfully break all of his ten laws. We defy the wisdom of his design by approving uh, sexual confusion and making it a standard talking to a pastor from another country this week, and, and in order to get the United States' financial and military support, he 
had to, they as a nation had to agree to promote the LGBTQ agenda in order to get the support that they need. And we, we, God created it that way and we throw it in his face. We, we carelessly destroy his creation by aborting and thus striking against his image by the thousands. And then we despise his patience. It's like, well, God really cared. Wouldn't he just strike us with lightning? Well, he's patient because he's not willing that any should perish. We abuse his grace. The end result is because of an act of rebellion and an insurrection in the garden. There is no man who can say, I have done all that I wanted to do and I have become all that I wanted to be. It's just futility, as he says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Adam sinned, the earth became corrupted, Adam lost his kingdom and his crown, and suddenly man fell to the bottom of creation, and earth and evil now ruled over the man who was created by God to rule over earth. Suddenly we have climate change and poisonous plants and venomous reptiles, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, pandemics, and wars. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, we have watched as man was dying, and now we realize that God's creation, the earth, is dying as well. It says in Romans chapter 8, and even nature itself longs for the day of the revealing of the sons of God because it too will then be set free from its bondage and its slavery to sin and destruction. Pastor Ray Stedman said, we have made wonderful advances in technology, but we have made absolutely zero progress when it comes to moral relationships. Somewhere man has lost his relationship with God. Or G.K. Chesterton put it this way, something has gone wrong. Whatever is or is not true about man, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. There's this, there's this great reversal which brings us to the rescue mission of Christ. The very purpose for this word is that their only hope is in Jesus himself and no place else. The rescue required an incarnation. Jesus had to come into our condition and he did so not when our race was unfallen, when it was perfect like it was in the original garden, but when it was battered and bruised by sin. Yet he passed through it without sin while experiencing its pain, its sorrow, its rejection, its hunger, its weariness, its trials, its temptations, its ridicule, and even finally its cruelest of executions. He hung on the cross and he did all of that for us. And then as I said, as we were reading, the greatest summary of human history is given right here in verse 8. And now putting everything in subjection to him, as was originally human's destiny, creation, he left nothing outside his control. Now this is a letter written to encourage a homeless group of people gathered in a huddle somewhere in the shadow of the imperial thrones of Rome who are 
living day to day, not certain if they survive or not, the day to come. And the author believes that the great encouragement to them is to remind them that God is still in control. He is still working out His plan. And His ultimate plan is, as I said, it's a double negative. He, he states it twice so that we don't miss the point. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. In other words, He is sovereign over all. As we slaughter babies by the thousands, and as our brothers and sisters in West Africa and in Afghanistan, and regrettably, yes, even here in our own nation, as they live under the tyranny of those that are servants of the adversary, God still sits on his throne. And there is one who has been raised up to sit on the throne to his right, who is still fully and completely in control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. There's that other negative. We're like, I, I, I don't get it. The, the whole world is a mess. Man has put their hope and their confidence in humanity. And yet the end result of that is that there is nothing but increasing decadence and chaos. We can never rest our hope in human effort. Regretfully, Linda and I have had many robust conversations about politics and things like that. It's like, but regrettably, we as believers often think that if we just get the right politicians in the right seat, then everything is going to work out just fine. Thank you very much. And the reality is, is that Psalm 20 says that some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but they rise and they fall. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the message he wants them in Rome, under tyranny, under threat, under suspicion, approaching execution, martyrdom for their faith. He wants them to understand that you still trust in the Lord our God. Can never rest our hope in what man can come. Back in the 60s, I'm old enough to remember, John F. Kennedy was our 35th president, and he said this, our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable. And we believe we can do it again. Here we are almost 60 years later. How's that worked out for you? Or Harvard psychologist in the 70s, B.F. Skinner said, we have not yet seen what man can make of man. And my answer to that is somewhat like my answer to Scott Frost in 2017. He said, what are you going to do to adjust to the Big Ten? And he said, the Big Ten will adjust to us. And they have done that very well, thank you. <laughs> we have seen what man can make of man. The history of man is one of continually precipitating a crisis by attempting to exercise dominion. We try to control insects, so we poison the earth with pesticides. We try to control weeds, so we spray Roundup and kill people instead. We botch exits from Vietnam and Afghanistan. Thousands of desperate 
Haitians live under a bridge in Texas. Virus pandemics that mutate faster than the lab can craft a vac solution. Unwanted pregnancies resulting in murder so the careers of athletes are unhindered. Gulf winds wreaking havoc on coastal communities. Today there are more slaves in the world than there has been at any point in human history. More infant murders take place than ever before in human history, and Rome led the world in that in Paul's day. More wars, more conflicts, more division, more disagreement. And now, 67-year-old Jeffrey Bezo is pouring millions of dollars into discovering the secret to eternal life. I'll give him a copy for free. We are passionate to preserve and restore the natural world. But how is it that a man who cannot control his own sinful passion somehow thinks he's equipped to rule over the universe? Only when man accepts dominion, that is the reign and the rule of God in Christ, will he have the authority and the ability to exercise dominion. God's rescue mission was to recapture man's destiny. Man was created to rule all things, Genesis 1. Man was placed on temporary probation. He was removed from the garden. He was made for a while lower than the angels. Man is incapable of ruling all things. He can't even rule himself. Man was rescued by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection so that he can fulfill God's original purpose. Man's created purpose was to make the invisible God visible to his creation. We are created in the image of God. What does God think like? What does God feel like? How does God emotionally respond to the world around? How are we ever going to know that? We can't see God, and yet he created us to be a visible reflection of his invisible character. We desperately need somebody to rescue us, and the restoration begins with Jesus. When man lost control, Jesus took control. He says here in verse 7, and he repeats it in verse 9, you have crowned him with glory and honor, glory being the radiance of his presence. We talk about the Shekinah cloud and light of the Old Testament. And honor, that is a position of respect, reverence, and awe. He says it again here in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. This one. Namely, Jesus, who is, according to John chapter 1, the Word from the beginning, and by Him and through Him were all things made. Nothing is made that was not made by Him. That one had to become part of His creation in order that He might redeem the fallen creation and restore man to his original destiny and purpose. So for a little while, we see, that's what Psalm 8, it's Messianic Psalm suddenly, Realize that David laying out there on that star-covered hill and looking at that, what is man? Mindful of the son of man. That 
You care for him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angel. He had no idea that he was talking about God himself becoming a man. Fully God and fully man. Namely, Jesus. He's doing this whole narrative on why, why do we worship Jesus and not the angels? What's the role of the angels? and What's God's future plan for the angels? But the emphasis is on this person of Jesus. Worship is making much of Jesus. And he uses that name nine times in Hebrews. He uses the name Christ six times in Hebrews. He combines the two together, Jesus Christ, three times in Hebrews. What's the point of the name Jesus? That is the name of his humanity. God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. First John, or John chapter 1, verse 4. Team. It's the name that Matthew 1.21 says that Gabriel gave to Joseph. This one with whom your fiancé is pregnant is none other than the Son of God, and she's going to give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. Whenever you read Jesus in the book of Hebrews, think in terms of his full humanity and his mission of rescue. That's the whole purpose for which he came. He crowned him, as he said, with glory. John chapter 17. Turn to John chapter 17. This one who for a season of time was willing to become a man, to be born of a woman in a barn. We sang about it earlier today. This one has been raised up to a position of glory and honor. The transition is in John 17. And I'll just give you a a heads up. In February, the the Sixth Church Fellowship of Bible Churches, the collective of Bible Churches in Lincoln, uh, we're going to host a Bible conference the end of February, and we're going to preach through John 17. So it's a Friday night, Saturday, put it on your calendar. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and that they might know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. This Jesus God raised up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name Jesus. Ephesians 1.20 according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every other name that is named. Doesn't it sound a little bit like Daniel 7, the prophecy of the Son of Man? Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When he reigns, we reign with him. Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. 1 Peter 3.22, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is what Jesus is talking about when it was all over in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, right before he went back to the Father. At that moment, he declares that the mission for which he became flesh was accomplished when he said, all authority has now been given to me in heaven and on earth. You guys go and make disciples. You see, the only way that man can be king again is that he has got to deal with the curse that was given in the act of rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. Created to rule, co-regents with God over everything that he created. But the only way that he can be restored to that position is that somehow the curse that came from rebellion, therefore the rescue mission of the Christ Ultimately, the debt had to be paid. The way to remove the curse is to pay the penalty. So Jesus, by his death and resurrection, brought man back to the place where he could rule. Restored to his destiny. What the first Adam lost in the garden, the second Adam regained on Golgotha's hill. One death to recapture our lost destiny. One death to recover our lost unity. One death to reassure our lost certainty. The Apostle Paul says that our, our blessed hope is this truth, that we are by faith placed into Christ Jesus. Paul uses that in him 169 times in his epistles. The beauty is that we will rule and reign with Christ because when we come to the end of ourselves and recognize our desperate need for someone to pay the penalty for our sin. And we realize that he did it for us, is validated by his resurrection. At that moment, the Spirit of God places us into Christ. And Paul can write to the Colossians, and you are now seated with him in heavenly places. Charles Spurgeon said, there is no true deliverance from the fear of death except by looking to him whose death is the death of death. The great penalty for our rebellion against God is death. The wages of sin is death. So, today, what's the role of angels? That's what he's trying to put into place. Today, the angels are ruling the world. John chapter 12, verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan is in charge of the world we're living in. You want to know what all the chaos is? Well, God sits as sovereign over it all. What's the chaos? Because the ruler of this age is Satan, Lucifer, who rebelled against God. John chapter 14, verse 30 says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on you. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he warns us 
while we wait for the second coming of Jesus and we do the ministry of the gospel, he says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. Again, the messianic kingdom is the theme song that ties all of the prophets together. And yet, the author to the Hebrews began at the very beginning by saying, and this Jesus is even better than the prophets. The angels, they remain the faithful servants of God. Well, what happened is, is, is that in creation, there was Christ Jesus, the angels, and with the rebellion, the fall, man became lower than the angels, even though he was created to rule over them and to judge them. When Christ came to earth, he forfeited, he, he gave up that second category, and it was God the Father, the angels, Jesus, and us. But when he defeated man's number one enemy, which is death and the grave, suddenly it is God, Jesus, and us, the believers, and the angels. These are the blessings of this prophecy, this, this world that is to come, which we are speaking of, verse 5. Hospitals will be closed. Doctors are going to be fully retired, for sickness will have ceased. Sorry, Jesse. A lot, a lot of schooling and training to be retired early. Prisons will be open and never to be occupied again, for crime will have ended. Eldon will be out of a ministry. Poverty and discrimination will cease. Funeral directors will be happily unemployed as there will be no more dying. I did two funerals this week. Death might be man's last great enemy, but it's still wrestling with us. Peace, justice, equity, righteousness will reign over all. Through his one and only death, sinners have been rescued. Jesus redeemed men and women to receive an eternal blessing. Creation will be delivered from its bondage, Romans chapter 8. Satan will be bound and cast down. Heaven and earth will be in harmony with God. And paradise will be real again. For those who wonder, does anybody know that I'm here? Does anybody care? Will anyone ever truly love me? Will I ever truly, genuinely be known? The author of the Hebrews said, your answer is this. Christ on the cross is the measure of your worth. And Christ on his throne is the guarantee of your future. There is a man seated in glory. Jesus became fully man while he's continuing to be fully God. He is seated at the Father's right hand as a man today, one day we will be sitting there with him and we will rule and reign in righteousness forever. His love for you is clearly seen on the cross. He died for you. You were placed into him. You already reign with him and with him you will rule over all the created world because you were made for this purpose. So to the homeless church, of Rome, to our brothers and sisters in West Africa and Afghanistan, 
And to those of you that are suffering because of your faith in Jesus, when you attain a grand vision of Jesus Christ, only that will bring you comfort in the midst of your raging life storm. One day soon, our Redeemer King will rule His redeemed saints over a redeemed world. Isaiah 35 puts it this way, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. God's ultimate intention is to have his redeemed earth become a kingdom ruled by redeemed men and women, insignificant, seemingly forgotten saints in a small house church in Rome will one day be ruling everything that God created. Suffering saints must look forward to the completion of God's ultimate purposes and fulfillment of his unwavering promise. No longer slaves, no longer homeless, no longer sick, no longer in poverty. We will reign with Christ in glory. Only Jesus can restore your dignity and your destiny. You have to ask yourself the question, is he enough? I think the best benediction I could find is this one in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.